Hey, it's me, Tim Ranzetta, co-founder of NextGen Personal Finance. Thank you for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. This week, Yanelli is joined by her guest, Richard Ellis. He's the executive director at My529. He's going to talk about this year's America Saves Week that currently runs until March 3rd. Yes, this is the day that the podcast is being launched. This year's theme, A Financially Confident You. Richard also dives in deep about 529 plans and how they are a tool to help people save up to pay for college. He describes the pros and cons of 529 plans as well as the major changes. Yes, the financial services industry is constantly evolving. He's going to talk about major changes coming in 2024 as a result of the Secure 2.0 Act. Enjoy. All right. Well, with all of that being said, I'm so excited to officially kick off the NGPF speaker series. Welcome back to the NGPF podcast, Richard Ellis. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you tonight about America Saves Week and saving for college. Well, Yanelli, thanks so much for inviting me back. It's great to be here with you all this evening. This is definitely one of those conversations that doesn't just happen once. It got, it's kind of an ongoing conversation. It's a really tricky thing for a lot of families to tackle um, this big goal of saving for something as big and as expensive as college. So it's really cool that you know, you've devoted a lot of your work to uh, advocacy in terms of getting folks to understand what's going on in the space with your recent work at um, My529, but also a lot of your previous work in education at the college level and also in government. So give us a little snapshot of a quick profile of the different parts of your career path and what led you to the work that you do now um, at My529. You know, I think it's like everything. We stumble into something and that's where we end up for our career. But, <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, I've had a lot of great opportunities through my career, and um, I, I, I worked for state government in Utah for 20 years, and two terms of that, I served as an elected state treasurer, and part of my responsibilities was to chair, it's, an, it's a horrible acronym, UCFI, but it was the Utah Council for Financial and, Financial and Economic Education, uh, where we brought partners in. We had Utah Jumpstart, we had local banks and credit unions, and um, AAA Fair Credit and all of those, we work together to help create that awareness for financial wellness because that's such an important topic. And, you know, we participated in Utah Saves Week and doing things like that just to make people aware. And now I find myself here at My529 with a particular focus on helping people save for education and really wanting to make sure we're appealing not just to the wealthy at all income levels. We want people to have that opportunity to expand their skills and their knowledge once they finish their secondary education. Yeah, so that's an excellent point. I think that a lot of families, especially lower families and middle-income families, feel like this stuff is inaccessible to them, or maybe like it's out of reach. Like, oh, that's not realistic for us. You know, putting money aside like that, that's for the wealthy. And so making it accessible and giving folks real examples of how this could look and feel, even with a family that is not super high income earning, um, it, it just makes it a lot more accessible, approachable, relatable for everyday families. And so I really I appreciate you making that point because I do think that there's a lot of work to be done in bringing these resources out into the community. Um, and, and it's a great thing, which I think we'll start with kind of America Saves Week. And it's a great thing that that initiative is really focusing on spreading awareness and getting resources out, kind of creating this national um, momentum or national opportunity to really get work done in communities to help folks understand how important saving money for your future is in, in 
kind of transforming your life and your family's um, trajectory. So tell us a little bit about America Saves Week, Utah Saves Week, and what kind of does that look like? What goes into that effort and your experiences preparing for it and implementing different initiatives? Well, the council I talked about earlier, they take a lead on this through the state treasurer's office. So we have partnered with the state treasurer's office and Utah Jumpstart. We're kind of the primary sponsors, the three of us on this. And a couple of weeks ago, I uh, pre-recorded a segment with our state treasurer, Marlo Oaks, to talk about 529 plans and the importance of saving for future education. And I know that every day, starting next week, he's going to release one of these recordings he's done with different people to talk about different aspects, because education is one point of it. Part of it is just, you know, understanding what are the needs for emergency savings. There's uh, you know, what do we do when we get the flat tire or when the dryer goes out? It seems like appliances today are are, are made to uh, have a three to five year life and then we have to replace them at eight, nine hundred dollars. And so we all have to be prepared for those things. And of course, retirement comes along. And so there's so many things. And it's really just how do we get our lives in order to be able to set aside a little bit of money? And how do we start that? And then how do we expand that as as life goes on and as our income and opportunities increase? Absolutely. Especially as time goes on. Uh, One of the biggest things that I find that tend to be, I guess, a a point of frustration for students, particularly at the high school level, because like we do have curriculum for middle school and and I started my career as an elementary school teacher. So I do have experience with like the K through eight space. But what I'm noticing in the nine through 12 and even early college level is this sense of frustration that, you know, if you didn't get an early start, if you waited maybe till the teenage years or even a little after that you you feel like you now have to play catch up and the only way to really do that is by contributing larger amounts in order to really reach a, a particular target savings goal that you might have for example college tuition which usually kicks in around 18 19 years old so they're really time based goals when when it comes to saving for things like college um, or buying your first car or something like that So can you talk to us a little bit about that? What happens when a family feels like this sudden sense of urgency and this frustration that maybe they just didn't get an early start the way that maybe they feel like they should have or would have if they could, but now are in a situation where they're having to start a little late? You know, that's such a challenge because we'd all love to start early and, you know, life is backwards. We have all the vacation, more vacation than we need and more money than we need when we're 65. And if we'd only would have had that when we were 24 and started our families and education and, and careers, it would have been so much nicer to save that way. And, you know, I think when we think about education and how do we begin saving for it, it's, it's just whenever you can start, begin doing something. And whether it's five or 10 or $25 a month, we all need to do something. Um, you know, there was a study and, and the data is getting old. I wish it were updated, but it was either out of Kansas State or University of Kansas done about 10 or 12 years ago, you know, saying that if a child had between zero and five hundred dollars in an account, it became aspirational and they were four times or three times more likely to enroll in college, four times more likely to graduate than than a child that didn't have that. And and we have to look that, you know, not every child is designed to go to a research university or even a four-year college. Um, some just need an associate's degree, an awful lot, vocational skills. I mean, we, we, we need to focus more on that as a society because we all need plumbers because I'm not a good plumber, nor am I a good electrician, nor am I a good car mechanic or any of those things. And those are great careers and they're high paying careers. And we, we need to focus more on educating people about those opportunities. And, you know, in Utah, we have, they're referred to as Utah Applied Technology Colleges. 
And so they're eligible for 529 funds because they, they have financial aid eligibility from the federal financial aid program. Um, you know, and for $1,500, $2,000, you can have a certificate to go out and become an electrician or, you know, those skill sets. And, and lots of states have those. And it's important we focus that way. That is an excellent point. I notice um, when you go to savingforcollege.com and you compare the different 529 plans that exist, uh, they all have very different or like all of the states have their own uh, state 529 plan that are offered to residents of the state. But I noticed that they have very different ratings. Um, Utah in particular is one of the much stronger ratings on the site. Um, and I will put the link in the chat for folks that want to like look and compare. It's uh, savingforcollege.com. So can you talk to us a little bit about why a 529 plan would be strong versus an alternative 529 plan that maybe is of lesser interest to families? What would make one particularly beneficial? Um, we know that there are tax advantages and you can feel free to speak to that. Nancy asked about that in the chat, but just generally when looking at, for example, two different 529 plans, what would make one better than another? Yeah. Well, there's a few things to look at. You know, we talk about the tax advantage. And and so for all 529 plans, there's a federal tax advantage in that uh, any earnings are deferred from federal income tax and quite often state income tax until the money's withdrawn. And if it's withdrawn for qualified education expenses, you never pay tax on it. So that's kind of the number one selling point. But when we start to compare plans, there's a lot of things to look at. Some states offer a state tax incentive. In Utah, we have a, a credit equal to our income tax rate, which currently is 4.85%, capped at about a $4,500 total contribution per beneficiary uh, uh, for a joint filing. Other states have a deduction, and some states it's only a couple thousand dollars. Other states it's $10,000 can be quite large. So when you start looking at pl 529 plans, you always have to think, is there an advantage to be with my state because fees may be higher in another state, and I may think it's a better plan, but that tax advantage that the state offers me is something I should look at. Um, you know, a lot of state, I can't say a lot, but what are there, nine states or so that don't have state income tax? Um, for them, it's a free-for-all. They could go to any state plan, and, you know, they're not going to be disadvantaged by doing that. And, and so the, the things when we, Morningstar is one of the primary raters. Saving for College has their own rating system, and they really focus on returns and a few other things. Morningstar is uh, kind of the, the one we uh, a lot of us look to, and Utah is one of two gold-rated plans by Morningstar. But they look at things like your, your governance structure. Um, how susceptible are you to the political whims? A lot of plans are in state treasurer's office. As a new state treasurer comes in, things, focus could change with it. Other plans are part of their higher education, like my plan. And so they look at the governance structure. They look at um, your investment team and, you know, are they in-house? If you have outside consultants, how good are they? How do they format the investments? What are the investment alternatives you have? So while you look at a site like Morningstar or savingforcollege.com, all have ratings. I, I think a key thing to look at really, do they have the investment options I'd like? What are their fees like? Because that's another thing. You don't think a lot about, well, this one charges half a percent and this one charges 15 hundredths of a percent. Um, you know, that's 35 basis points or a little over three tenths of a percent. When you compound that over 18 years, that adds up to be more money. So, you know, fees are there minimum amounts you have to have to contribute to a plan. Um, do I have a, a minimum amount to, to open the plan, but also when I make a monthly or weekly contribution. So there are a lot of things to think about when looking at 529 plans and comparing them. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like in summary, depending on where you live and what investment choices you're interested in, you got to do a bit of research. Um, Not all 529 plans are created equal. So you do have to do a bit of research. Now, for someone, let's say, who has done some research and they find out that they are in a state that does not offer a state tax deduction on on your tax filing for 529 contributions, would you then recommend that they just look for one of the best rated plans on Morningstar or on Saving for College or something like that. And, and like with confidence kind of look elsewhere since they don't get a state deduction, or is there any other consideration before they kind of opt out of their own state's plan that you would say? Yeah. You know, if you don't have that state incentive for, for an income tax savings, probably the next step is look at a highly rated plan and then look at the fees of those highly rated plans and decide and the investment options, which one works for you? Because 529 plans can, the savings or the proceeds from that can be used at any institution that's eligible for fed, for federal financial aid. So it doesn't have to be within the state you live in. We have uh, account owners from all 50 states. Um, and we send checks all over the country to several thousand, four or 5,000 different institutions across the country because we have you know people from everywhere and and beneficiaries attending a lot of different things. So, you know, if you don't have that state income to that incentive, then look for the best plan you can find out there. That's a great point. Um, there is a great resource shared about um, the, just the source about like different states, 529 plans that was shared in the chat from Barb. Thank you for sharing that. Um, one of the things that I think we should address before we even kind of get into like updates and changes, cause there are major ones um, coming uh, soon is uh, I think misconceptions around 529 savings, because I got to tell you, even in my own family, like it's one of the things that like, I, I it, it frustrates me so much because I will share so much education and articles and videos and things with my siblings. Um, and I'm, I'm from a really big family. I have eight siblings and almost all of them have children and I, I don't. So I'm sort of like the financial auntie who's like, always texting like you know recommendations on what what to do and and i tell all of them like listen set up the 529 plan even if you don't fund it what i recommend that they do is just open it up and that way they have a you gift code and every year you know when it comes time for uh holiday gifts or birthday gifts or you know any occasion that's like a special occasion i tell them just tell people not to buy toys or clothes or shoes or things but instead to fund the 529 plan they can put any contribution that they they can in their budget and all they need is is the the link to the website and the code and so that's a really nice alternative rather than kind of you know getting all the the typical types of gifts every year um and i'll tell you one of my sisters when i i told her that i was like this is what you got to do it's pretty simple this is what you should set up and she responded and said well one of my co-workers told me not to set up a 529 plan because it will take away my kids' chances of getting financial aid. And I I was like fuming. I was like, why are you listening to your coworker and not to me? First of all, <laughs> first of all, but <laughs> but second of all, it was so frustrating because she didn't even ask me like, hey, is this true? Tell me more about this. What do you think? She just like, li- she just believed her coworker and was pretty much convinced that she was not gonna pursue opening a 529 plan, even though that's, you know, what I kind of told her that she should do. So I think a lot of people do this. They, it's hearsay. It's my coworker said this, it's my neighbor told me that. 
And then they just kind of believe these things. So let's go ahead and address, let's start with that misconception of, um, or maybe it's like a slight misunderstanding around the effect on financial aid that, that a 529 contribution would have when it's time to you know, pay for college. Yeah, no, I think that's a great place to start because that is one of the bis- big misconceptions. Because when we think of the, the FAFSA that every college-bound child has to fill out to get financial aid, you have to list assets on there. Um, the nice thing about 529 plans, do they have to be listed? Yes, they do. Because you know they're generally owned by the parents and you've got to list the parents' assets. But only 5.64% of the balance is considered in the, the um, family contribution, estimated family contribution amount. So it's not a big impact. Now, if the, the account were owned by the child, you have to be 18 to own an account, so the child themselves probably aren't going to own it. Um, there used to be some disadvantages for grandparents to hold those accounts and give that money to the grandchild, but that goes away as we filled out FAFSA. I think it's this coming October that there's no longer that grandparent penalty because that used to be 50% of that was like income to the child, so it had a big hit. Going forward, that's not going to be recognized as income or an asset, so grandparents can give to it. Um, but that myth that, oh, I'm not going to qualify for financial aid, 5.64% of a balance is, is not significant. And frankly, a lot of accounts are not that very are not that big. When we think about a median account balance of maybe twelve or thirteen thousand dollars, it's not going to make a huge difference. That's a great point. So that's that's really important to hear. It's like saying that you're going to make your entire decision based off of something that just has a 5.64% impact or or a negative impact, right? Like that's really, that's such a small, barely putting a dent in the impact on your financial aid eligibility. So why would you ruin your chances of potentially accruing, you know, tens of thousands of dollars over the course of your saving journey? just because of this very small impact. It, it, it doesn't make sense logically, right? Right. Um, okay, great. So another misconception that I have heard a lot is, well, I don't, wanna, I don't want to create a 529 plan because it can only be used for college. And if I don't use it, I'm going to lose that money and be penalized heavily. And, and, and there's just this, I don't understand why people have that misconception that they're just going to lose all this money. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not the case. So uh, talk us through, you know, what really is the impact if the money either isn't used for qualified education expenses specifically, or is just sitting there and and doesn't all get all used by the time the child graduates from college? Yeah, we hear that all the time at outreach events. Well, what if my child doesn't go? Well, you know, we don't know 12 years from now, 18 years from now, whether the child will use it or not. But again, it's an opportunity to save in a tax deferred manner. Um if, if the child ends up deciding not to go to college, again, there are options out there. Uh, registered apprenticeships are now eligible uh, to use your 529 funds on. So that's an option. Um, you can always transfer that balance to another family member. And family member is very broad. It could be to a cousin of the child, to a sibling of the child. You could hold on to it, transfer it to a, a grandchild later on. Um, you could pull the money out. Worst case is you take the money out and you have to pay income tax and a 10% penalty only on the earnings portion, not on what you contributed, but just on the earnings portion. So yeah, there's a hit on that, but you can always access to the funds. But you know, I usually tell people, why would you want to do that? You've committed the money, you've saved it, save it for a grandchild, transfer it to another child. Or the other concern is, well, what if my child gets a scholarship and they don't need the money? 
scholarships generally don't cover all the expenses. And so the money can be used for things that aren't covered, but you can also withdraw the funds equal to the amount of the scholarship out without the 10% penalty. Still have to pay tax on the earnings, regular income tax, but you don't have to pay the 10% penalty. And we all want our kids to get scholarships. The fact of the matter is most of us are not going to have kids get scholarships that pay their full ride. We're still going to need some savings. That is exactly true, um, especially given the fact that the cost to attend college is only increasing for the past few decades and doesn't look like it's going to reverse that trend anytime soon. Um, so there is a question which I think is a really important one. A lot of confusion around the difference between having the parent, um, the having the 529 plan open in the parent's name versus grandparents' name. So can you clarify for us two things? One, is there a major difference? If you're opening an account, should you opt for putting it in a parent's name versus a grandparent's name? Pros and cons of each. And then the 5.64% that um, is impacted um, and reported on FAFSA, is that only when the 529 plan is a parental asset or does that also count if it's a if the if it's in the grandparent's name as well? Let's start with the last question on the grandparent and the 5.64% on FAFSA. It's only the parent's amount that gets shown on the FAFSA, not the grandparent's assets on FAFSA. So there isn't that penalty for grandparent. Funny you asked the question. I just had a friend ask me the other day, well, I've been thinking opening an account not sure if I should have my child open it and give them the money to fund the account or if I should open my own account. Um, my advice, and maybe it's just because I'm prejudiced uh, as a grandfather, I've got 15 grandchildren and I have 15 accounts that are my own and my kids have their own accounts for each of their children too. Um, because I have the money in my account and I have control over it. If I turn it over to my, to my child to be the owner of the account, now this is my adult child, um, I've lost control of it. They make all the investment decisions. They decide how it gets dispersed. If they want to pull it out to buy a boat, they can pull it out or buy the boat and pay taxes. But if it stays in my account, I'm able to control it. And I always have the option in the future to transfer the account ownership to my child if that's what I choose to do. Um, but I also can control the money. And when I get offended by my oldest grandson, because he says just I'm an old codger, I can take his money and give it to his little sister and show him who's really in charge. So I have control as a grandparent. So my recommendation to people is grandparents open account in your name because you get the tax advantage there also um, and have and encourage your children to open accounts for their children. So both accounts are there because there's no reason that everybody shouldn't save together. Yeah, it could all be in one account. Um but in Utah, it's an advantage because if I contribute to my son's account, he gets the tax credit for what I contribute to his account. I might as well keep that for me. Now, not all states are that way. That's the way it is in Utah. Um, but I highly encourage grandparents do that because at Christmas time, I give my little grandkids a little certificate. My wife made one up this year, looked like a dollar bill with my picture on the front of it. And this was from grandpa. And I show them how many dollars they have in their account. And I can tell you, my 15-month-old grandson just stuck it in his mouth, spit on it, and then threw it away. <laughs> My 11-year-old grandson looked at it and he said, gosh, that's $11,000, Grandpa. That's real money. Wow. Um, you know, So as they get older, they begin to recognize it. But I want them to know I care enough about them. I want them to go on and, and get additional education and skills beyond high school. 
And that's my expectation. And I want them to know I care that much. So I think for grandparents, it's a great way to help teach their grandchildren and let them know they really care about and love them. Yeah. Oh, listen, this is not limited to grandparents. I'm totally stealing that idea myself as the auntie who's who's been doing all kinds of contributions on 529 Plants. I have 10 nieces and nephews and I'm totally stealing that idea. I'm going to print my little Monopoly money with my face on it and add the 529 contributions. Do it. It's so important for them to be aware of it. Like, I think also it includes them in recognizing like, hey, there's this dollar amount that I'm going to need to pay for college. And if I like if they take part in like the ownership of trying to reach this big goal, they might then start telling people like, oh, you know what? Actually, I don't want toys this year. Can you add money to my 529 account? Because I have this slip and I could increase that amount on it if you put if you add that money there instead. And so they can kind of become a part of that um, effort and, you know, take ownership over it as well. Um, okay, so we had a couple questions, and that was um, really great. Quick uh, point about grandparents versus parents, but uh, some folks are wondering about non-parental or grandparent um, ownership. So, an aunt, an uncle, a, a sibling, any issues around somebody who is not a parent or grandparent opening nope. it? You can open a five twenty nine account up for anyone. If you like mm-hmm. your neighbor's kid, you can open up for your neighbor's kid. If it's a <laughs> godchild, you can do it for a godchild. You can do it for nieces. Nieces and nephews fall within the family definition, so that's always helpful transferring assets if something were to happen and, and you wanted to do that. But anyone can open a 529 account for someone else. You can even open it for yourself. You know, mm-hmm. Maybe you get older, you retire, and say, you know, I want to take that, that foreign study class at the University of Utah in Italy to learn how to cook for a month. If I get matriculated to the U, I pay my fee there, I can use my $529. So there's a lot of options of how you can still use that money. Nice. I love that. Imagine just being in Italy and knowing that you didn't have to pay taxes on the dollars you spent on that amazing education. (laughs) Um, Amazing. Okay, great. So now let's go ahead and switch gears and talk about what changes are coming, because I think that that's one of the big things that have been kind of in the headlines around um, the Secure 2.0 Act. One major piece of it is this change to 529 plans that now creates a lot of flexibility, but also with certain limitations in place too, because it's not just a free-for-all that anybody gets to kind of now add this 529 plan to their retirement uh, planning or estate planning and, you know, just do whatever they want with money in there. There are still some uh, limitations around what you can do and amounts Mm -hmm. that you can put. So tell us what are the major key things that are changing starting in 2024 uh, due to the Secure 2.0 Act? Yeah, Secure 2.0 really focused on retirement savings for everyone. Included within that was the ability to roll excess funds from a my or from my from a 529 account into a Roth IRA account for the same beneficiary. So the account owner can't roll it into their own Roth IRA. It has to be into the beneficiary's Roth IRA. So there's one point right there. Now people say can I change myself to the to the beneficiary and then roll it over? We have no guidance yet on that, so I can't answer that question. We're waiting for the, the IRS to give us that further knowledge we need to answer that question. Um, so that's one piece of it. It has to go into the beneficiary's Roth IRA. There's a $35,000 limit on the amount that can roll over into the Roth IRA. Um, you know, Roth IRAs currently have a $6,500 per year amount that can be rolled over. Um, so if, if 
the child has some of their own money they put into or the beneficiary puts their own money into the Roth IRA, it still can only be 6,500. So if you had 3,000 of your own money you put in, you could roll over 3,500 from a 529 account into the Roth IRA. So you still have that limit of 6,500, but you can do that until you hit the $35,000 cap. Uh, a couple of major things though, is that the account has to have been open for 15 years before you can do this. So you can't just open it for the child when they're 15 and think, oh, in nine years, I'm gonna roll that over and, and take the money. It's not gonna work that way. 15 year life of the account minimum. Also, any contributions in the last five years, contribution and earnings cannot be rolled into the account. Um, you know, so Congress really was trying to limit this so it didn't become a tax haven for the very wealthy that, you know, I fund this account, I sit on it the last couple of years, I load it up with as much money as I can, and then I roll it into a Roth IRA and kind of backdoor it into that world. Um, that's not what they wanted to have happen. So it, I, I don't think the usage is going to be huge. We're getting a lot of questions about it. We don't have a lot of answers on what this all means still, but it really is, it's one of, it, it kind of gets back past that question of, well, what if my child doesn't use all the money or if there's money left over, what can I do at the end? Well, help your child start their retire retirement savings because they may be a little tight. And, you know, a lump sum started at age 22 at 65 is worth a lot more than, you know, putting a little bit away, starting at 50 and trying to get there. So uh, that's, that's kind of a, a, a big broadening of 529 plan usages. Uh, we'll see how it all plays out and when we get guidance from the IRS on what it all really means. Yeah, and, and I think it makes a lot of sense, the point that you made about Congress thinking really carefully about how it looks and how it plays out, because the real issue that they were problem solving was that qualm that people have about like, oh, you know, I opened this when my kid was a baby, a newborn, and I funded it every year for 18 years. And then we stopped funding it. We used the money to pay for the four years of college. My kid now graduates. They're 23 years old, 25 years old. And there's an extra $15,000 sitting in there left over after all of the college was paid for because we had been contributing aggressively for 18 years, plus compounding for four years while they were in college. So it makes sense. It's like, oh, okay, now you have this $10,000, $15,000 lump sum left over. And a lot of people would say, oh, pass it to another sibling or to a cousin or to, but if you're an only child or, you know, what, there's so many other, there's so many instances mm -hmm. where a family might just say like, no, I, I should have flexibility with the money left over. And so in this case, that specific problem isn't really a problem anymore because you stop contributions usually once they're in college. So that gives you the four or the five years that you kind of aren't really worried about contributions not being able to roll over because you're not really contributing anymore. Um, and then that 18 years of money that has been used to pay for college, whatever is left over, it's definitely been open for more than 15 years, right? Because you started when the kid was a yep. newborn. So now at 23, 24 years old, they're getting their first job offer and they're able to roll over uh, you know, a lifetime 35,000. So definitely 10 or 15,000 over to the Roth IRA. They don't have to take the money out of their income to do that. You can start with the 529 contribution so that they can kind of get a head start on using their money to do whatever they got to do, get a new apartment, pay for a car, et cetera. And then once all of the money is transferred over to their Roth IRA, they can start making contributions on their own. So it is a really nice way to solve that problem and also give these college grads an opportunity to kind of kickstart that retirement saving. 
But you are right. I will tell you, I'm in the personal finance space and also in the retire early community of like super money nerds who are looking to like try to get every loophole. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I saw Twitter and Reddit was and Facebook was blowing up with people saying, I can't wait to take advantage of this loophole and like move over $35,000 tax free into my Roth IRA. And so it's interesting because once more details came to light, it was apparent that no, 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 you're not going to just be able to get away with that. That's not the intention. There's really are a lot of limitations. And I think the only one that you mentioned that's not really addressed yet is if you change the the beneficiary to your name and then roll over. But otherwise, they pretty much covered all their bases on any potential loopholes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's that's important because I do think that every time there's, you know, new new law that kind of gives opportunities to take advantage of these things, there's going to be criticism. So in this case, it's really tough to criticize the change because it did its job and, and just what it was intended to do. It is a positive. And, you know, and when you think about that, you think, well, maybe it's not that much. I shouldn't give this. This is a personal example, but I left a job back in 1993 and I had $32,000 in a 457 plan at the time when I left it. So now we fast forward to 2023 and I've added no more money to that, but now it's one hundred and thirty-four thousand um, dollars, just doing nothing. So it's that start that's so important. If you can help them out when they're twenty-four to start with that retirement savings, it helps them down the road. Just think yeah. if they would contribute to it, how much more it could be. Oh, absolutely. That's that's such a good point. Now you mentioned uh, leaving the money and just letting it sit there and grow for many many decades, which is definitely one way to just benefit from compounding. But can you talk a little bit about why the 529 plan tends to actually be really beneficial when used as something that you contribute to in small amounts consistently over a long period of time? Because that's powerful in a different way, but equally as um, beneficial in terms of the outcome. Yeah, you know, I, I think if it's too bad we're not all born with that innate understanding of the um, compounding interest and what that means. It's, it's just genius how that works out. And it's, it's just being consistent and starting early. Um, it's like with my grandkids, the month they're born, I start putting money away for them. Um, my expectation is I'm not going to pay for all of their college, but I think I'll have around $20,000 for each grandchild when they enter college. And that's just a consistent amount with only assuming a five or 6% return, not even an outrageous return that I can get there. Uh, and, and that's just what's so great about it. And if there's some money left over again, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of passing it on to that next generation, saving for the grandchildren, keeping it in a 529 plan. But that's what I do is 529 plan. So of course I would rather than roll it out. But um, that power of compounding is so important. And to teach that concept and get people to understand it, um, enough people don't get that nor do they get the flip side of it of paying interest and how that compounds against them just as quickly, only more quickly because interest rates are always higher. Oh yeah, definitely the interest rates increasing and inflation and all of those things. In terms of the 529, the nice thing is if you do use it for qualified education expenses, you don't have to worry too much about the taxes. But when you look at generally investing taxes, inflation, interest, I mean, everything affects the amount that you actually are able to keep at the end of the day. Um, But one of the things I think can be really, really helpful is recommending that folks just actually sit in front of a compound interest calculator and look at the difference between, you know, putting, let's say, a one time $1,000 contribution um, and then, you know, adding whatever amount you can every year, $500 or $1,000, and you do that for 18 years, 
if it grows at an average of seven or eight percent per year, we're talking about twenty-four thousand dollars just by putting a one-time one thousand dollar contribution and five hundred bucks every year after that for eighteen years. That's a lot of money, over twenty thousand dollars by doing, you know, not a lot every month, right? So that's definitely, um, I think, something that helps it feel accessible. Forty bucks a month is realistic for I think a lot of families, but then also adding an additional hundred or two hundred dollars um every year on the kid's birthday or a special holiday gets you from closer to 20 to now closer to 30,000 so just by putting a one-time $100 on their birthday contribution extra per year or adding you know $20 um every other month or something just an extra smaller smaller amount it, it it's doable it doesn't feel overwhelming or like a big financial responsibility um, and but because it's a small amount at a consistent pace over the course of 18 years makes a very big difference in terms of adding another $10,000 to the end result of, you know, your account balance. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm just thinking back your, your earlier comment about gifting platforms and that extra money, if, you know, like you say, you added it, an extra $100 a year can make a big difference down the road as that compounds. And, you know, just think of all the toys you step on that never get played with after the first three days that our kids and grandkids have. Um, boy, if that was an extra $50 bill you'd thrown in their account when they were one and two and three and four, uh, would be worth a lot more down the road and, and memorable at that point, make an impression in their lives. That is a great point. Uh, all right, so let's go ahead and take some questions before we wrap up. It looks like most of the ones that came up throughout our conversation um, we've covered. So there's one here that talks about thoughts on uh, saving from the very get-go for college with an IRA versus opening a 529 to begin with. So using an IRA for college savings planning rather than a 529. Thoughts on that? Close comments. Yeah, there are articles out there. I think I see at least one every week about which is better, a Roth <laughs> IRA or a 529 plan. And of course, you'll expect me to say a 529 plan, and I will. Um, you know, Roth IRAs can be used for more things. So you don't have just for education restriction that a 529 plan has. So if you're really concerned that I'm going to put money in here, it's not going to get used for education, then that may be a better option for you. Um, but Roth IRAs also, depending upon your income status, have limitations. You only put 6,500 into a Roth IRA. Um, there is no limit on what can go into a 529 plan. However, there is the federal gifting limit which I believe is 17,000 a year this year. And, uh, and if you know both parents could give 17,000, so there's 34,000 that could go into an account. So it gives you that option if you're higher income to be able to put more money into it. Um, so I, I, I think that's a great question. In my mind, I like to separate retirement from education savings and say, this is really education. When I put away for retirement, in my mind, that's what it's for. Otherwise. That's kind of like a rainy day fund for me. If, if, if that's how I view my Roth IRA, I'm putting money in there, but I have the ability to pull the, my contributions out at any time. That's really kind of a savings account with a little kicker for a tax incentive on my earnings. But, but you know, when it's for education, then there's a commitment. And again, I, I, this parent I was talking to asked about opening the grandchild accounts. I said, oh, you actually tell them how much money there is? And I think, yeah, because I think that's important. You can keep it a secret and not tell them, but why not tell them that, you know, you're vested in their future, whatever that might be. 
and, and really start that aspiration because, you know, I have, I have one son who finally completed a bachelor's degree. Uh, he was gosh, 31 when he finally did that or 32. Um, and his better option would have been a vocational career, but he had five other brothers that all went on to get master's degrees and MDs and BDSs and all that stuff. And, felt like he needed to have a bachelor's degree, but he was better suited for a vocational degree. And there's lots of kids that are that way. But whatever it is, I think it's just saying, I'm vested in you. I want you to aspire to do more than just be a high school graduate. Yeah, I love that point. And I also think to add, first of all, I love the psychological point that you made about, you know, really having the thought process go through of like, I am committed to investing in my child's education, being very different from like, I'm opening an invest, an individual retirement account that's like for retirement. They they have different purposes and tax incentives can be definitely alluring when they are more flexible, such as the IRA's tax incentives. But at the end of the day, you know, it's that commitment that actually allowed you to make the consistent behavior of contributing for that specific goal. That's what leads to success, right? So um, I love that point. And then the other thing that I wanted to bring up is you could also just add on some educational um, activities to that, to sharing your, the amount of money that you've saved, right? Or that you have, because one of the things, if you look back at the example that I mentioned earlier, where I said, you start when they're a newborn, you put a thousand dollars, and then every year you add 500 bucks, that's 40 bucks a month, plus a one-time $100 addition on their birthday. If you do that for 18 years at 8% return, that's $28,300. But you only put in $11,800 yourself from your contributions. So just by doing that, you're able to open up this conversation with the kid where you're like, listen, your account has $28,300, but I only put in 11,800. Like what, where did that extra $16,500 just magically come from? Right. And, and that allows for that, that learning moment to understand that compounding did more work than I did to get you to that goal, right? So I think that when you share the numbers, it can feel intimidating, can feel scary. A lot of people probably don't like that idea, but what about if you flip that on its head and actually take that as, as an opportunity to teach them and make it a, a teachable moment? Yeah, yeah, you know, I think that's really interesting because we're our plan has been around for 26 years and that's about where most 529 plans are. Last year out of the billion dollars that was withdrawn out of our plan for qualified education expenses, 40% of it had come from earnings. Now, you know, we're, we've got a lot in there that have been around for 18 years, but a lot of those accounts have had less than 18 years. In the next few years, we're going to have more and more that have 18 years. And that 40% is going to grow and grow. It's, it's like a defined benefit plan. Um, most well-run defined benefit plans now are like putting 30 cents in and getting 70 cents back um, because a lot of the benefit you're getting paid is off the investments. And it's the same thing with a 529 account. For me, that's an exciting number that 40% is earnings, not what you contributed, because that's 40% you didn't borrow in a student loan and then had to pay interest on. Exactly. Um, that's a great point. Uh, okay, so we have a question, which I think is actually a really good one. It's a specific one, but I think it can apply to a lot of people's situations, given that we're, you know, obviously spread all across the country now. Um so let's say Rochelle has a godchild that lives in a totally different state. Um, Rochelle lives in Indiana. Their godchild lives in California. And they want to help, you know, with funding the 529 plan. 
how do they go about picking a 529 plan? Do they look at the Indiana one, the California one? Do they look at one that's not from either state that might have better options or lower fees? Like, how do they go about it when there are multiple states involved in the scenario? Again, I think that's where the flexibility comes. The 529 money can be used in any state, even poor countries, at institutions eligible for federal financial aid. So you can live in Indiana, have that godchild in California, and open an Indiana plan, and that works fine. Or you could open a California plan, and that would be fine too. Again, it comes back to the question, what are the fees? What are my tax incentives? Which plan offers me the investment options I like? Those are the things you ought to look at to make that decision because they're, the right answer depends upon your state incentives and um, fees. So, Yeah, that's a good point. Now, do you find, Richard, that it's easy to get access to that information even if you don't open an account? Because, for example, if I don't have a 529 plan in the state of California, then how do I know what the investment options are available to that 529 plan holder in that state would be? Is that like readily available everywhere or on the website? Or is it something where you have to kind of call and pursue opening to find out all of those details? Well, I would hope it's readily available at every plan. I haven't looked at them all, but you know, if you just do a Google search like California 529 or Indiana 529, it will pop up the 529 plan or plans they may have in their state. Some state have several plans. Yeah. Um, and each of those plans will have information about their fees and their investments on their webpage. If not, we all have to print a, an offering document or a program description. And when you open an account, you certify that you've read every word of those 87 pages, um, which I don't know anybody does besides <laughs> me when I'm proofreading it before we go to the printer. Oh, um, my goodness. <laughs> but, but in there, it will have all the fees listed, all the investment options, information about that. And and so it's a little bit of homework on your part, but I think it's worth the effort to make sure I'm taking advantage. You should talk about tax advantages, state tax advantages, their fees have to be listed in there, their investment options and, and what comprises those investment options and how it's allocated all should be in there. So I think it's a um, little homework, but it's not hard to do. You just Google it. That's right. You'd pull up your Spotify or your mu whatever music player you choose to, to use, put a little instrumental music on so it doesn't have words and it won't distract you and just get to the task. It's a, it's a homework assignment. It's going to be some research, going to be some comparison, some analysis, right? And pull out your highlighters and go through, you print the documents or pull them up on the computer and just put them side by side and see. Um, and, and the thing is, you mentioned a couple things, which I, I recognize can be overwhelming for folks that maybe aren't as familiar with investing lingo, like the fees, right? Comparing expense ratios and looking at those basis points um, and the difference there looking at the different investment choices, right? Mm -hmm. uh, actively managed funds versus passively managed funds, low cost index funds versus other types of funds. So if those terms and that whole entire kind of uh, a task sounds to you like a foreign language right now, I will do a shameless plug for our NGPF certification course on investing. I teach it, it's five weeks. So two hours a week for five weeks. And at the end of that course, you will know intimately all of the definitions and how to use that information to make an informed decision for yourself about comparing uh, investment options. So I highly recommend taking the investing um, cert course if you haven't done that already. This was such a jam-packed session. We shared so much information in such a short time. So thank you so much for your expertise and wisdom, Richard. It was great to have you back. Thank you so much. 
Um, and I know the teachers appreciate it. I can see their uh, chats in the comment box saying that this was so informative, great information. Thank you so much. So we really appreciated having you back. Oh, thank you. I sure appreciate the invitation. Happy to do it anytime. Some housekeeping items before we go. I'm gonna put links to the sources that Richard mentioned. You'll find that in our show notes at www.ngpf.org forward slash podcast. Better yet, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. I want to thank Ren McKino for putting together the comprehensive show notes as well as producing the podcast every week. So on behalf of Yanelli, Richard, and myself, I want to thank you again for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. Have a wonderful week. Thank you.